The following audio is from Park Church in Denver, Colorado. More information about Park Church is available online at parkchurchdenver.org. Let's get down to the needy-greedy tonight. All right? little Nacho Libre for you. Um, so last night we sort of tried to lay a little bit of theological foundation, a little bit of theological backdrop for just the reality of life in community. Um, how is it that God has shaped us for that? Uh, what are the key sort of aspects of gospel apprehension that really unlock our potential for living in the kind of relationships God intended? Um, what I want to do tonight is I want to talk a, a little bit more fully about the the how, I guess you would say. Um, we want to get down a little more ground level and talk about, okay, so great, we believe this gospel that gives us an alien righteousness, that, that captures us and pulls us into a new story, and so therefore that sort of grounds us and centers us in a new kind of relationship and a new kind of community. Um, but what does it look like to actually sort of live that out? What needs to sort of happen for us to actually work that into the life of our sort of relationships with one another. And so here, I, I just have a simple big idea that I want to communicate. I'm going to be pretty short and pretty simple tonight. Here's the big idea that I sort of want to talk about and convince you of. The gospel frees you to offer yourself in relationship and not just a version of yourself. The gospel frees you to offer yourself not just a version of yourself. Let me try to explain, or not really explain yet, but unpack a little bit of what I mean by that by telling you a story out of my own life. Um, our church about four years ago went through a pretty challenging season relationally. Uh, we merged with another church. So there's another church in the city that um, had plateaued and was a little bit stuck and wasn't seeing missional growth. We were friends with the leaders at that church, and we got into conversations about, hey, what if we just merge these two church together, churches together? And as we prayed about that and talked about that, we sensed, yeah, that's, that's what the Spirit is doing. So we took these two different churches, two different cultures, two different leadership communities, two different ways of doing everything, and we sort of smashed them together into one church. And as you can imagine, that created a little bit of um, chaos, a little bit of discontentment, a little bit of people needing to sort of recalibrate to a new way of being the church. And in the midst of that season, for me as a leader especially, there's a lot of challenges, there's a lot of hardship, there's a lot of people unhappy about this or that, and of course that always sort of flows toward the leaders, and so I felt all of that as a leader. There were some relationships at the leadership level that were very challenging to sort of work through. And so I was pretty tired, pretty emotionally drained, pretty relationally spent leading our church through that season. Toward the end of that season, a new couple showed up in our church that had just moved to Omaha, um, and, and my wife and I really connected with them. This guy was an entrepreneur, had started a new business, and had actually sort of looked around at the places in the, in the nation where he could land it and said, man, there's a lot of people doing similar work in Omaha. I want to move there. So he had anchored his business in the downtown. It was growing fast. He's a very successful entrepreneur. Um, my youngest daughter is adopted. Uh, this family had two children that were adopted, and so we sort of had this chemistry and kinship when it came to entrepreneurship, when it came to adoption, when it came to sort of living life as a family, and so they became fast friends with my wife and I, um, and got connected to our church, and they were the kind of people that were in it to 
make disciples and to serve others. They really had a heart to push the mission of our church forward, to jump on board and, and work together. And so we began to talk about, hey, my wife and I at that time were leading one of the gospel communities in our church. And we said, hey, we're going to hand off this gospel community to some of the leaders that we've raised up. Let's go start a brand new gospel community. Let's invite in some new people that aren't connected yet with this other couple. And let's, let's start this. So they said, hey, that's great. We're going to host it at our house. And so they played host. And my wife and I left our gospel community behind and jumped in. And we sort of formed this new community, started inviting in people who were new within our church, as well as people we were just meeting throughout life. And so, man, for a few months, we had this really amazing synergy being on mission together, diving in and leading together in the mission of God. And then out of the blue, one day, this guy called me and said, hey, we're leaving the church. I said, what do you mean? You're, we're like in gospel community together. We haven't even, didn't even know this was on the radar. What's going on? And he, of course, had a lot of reasons that made a lot of sense to him, didn't really make any sense to me or to my wife. And so we sat down with this couple for dinner. And we're just like, hey, we love you guys. What do you mean? You're like, what's going on? Where, did, where are we missing? Where did, where did you get disconnected? How come we haven't talked this out? Um, those conversations got sort of deep and sort of intense because we started talking about, hey, we're in community together. You can't just sort of like peace out, right? Like we're, we're on mission together. We need to be in this together. Let's Let's talk through whatever you're stuck in or whatever's bothering you or wherever you feel like things aren't fitting together. Let's work through that. Um, their response was, now we're leaving. So as you can imagine, that gospel community that we had just started about three months before sort of blew up. Some of those people sort of found other communities to be a part of, but there was sort of this mass chaos when we showed up one night and we we're like, well, this is our last night as a gospel community because these guys are leaving. And so as you can imagine, that created all kinds of interesting conversation. Um, so here's what I did out of that. You realize as a leader, I'm coming out of a season that's been relationally challenging. We found this couple that both my wife and I really connect with and sort of developed a fast friendship with, and now they're bailing out. And for both myself and my wife, that was pretty difficult. We felt that pretty deeply. And we began to sort of react to that by sort of pulling back from relationship by saying man maybe we entered into relationship too quickly maybe we didn't think this through maybe we thought we were on the same page but weren't that was pretty painful we're going to back up a little bit but we're going to sort of step out of deep relationship for a season uh, that wasn't really intentional it was probably subconscious at the time but really what happened for me is I chose at that point for, for a, a season of time after that, I, I decided that as in relationships, as a leader, as a pastor, and as a friend, I would offer a version of myself, but not myself. Right? Like I'd be around and I'd still relate to people and I would sort of still be the leader and be the uh, relationally engaged person that people expected, but you, you weren't going to get me. Because I gave me in that relationship and it didn't go well and that was painful. Um, I wonder if you're aware of the ways that you have a tendency to do the same thing. Maybe out of a story like mine, maybe out of a different kind of story. Are you aware of the ways that you're prone to offer a version of yourself rather than yourself? I think that sometimes we do that and we're not even aware that we're doing it. 
In fact, some of you perhaps your whole life you've offered in relationships more really a version of yourself than your true self. You could ask the question this way, who knows the real you? Who really knows who you are and what's going on deep inside you? Um, When you think of words like guarded, withdrawn, self-protective, isolated, here but not here, present but not invested, these are words that describe what I'm talking about, this tendency that we have to offer a version of ourselves, or you might even say a piece of ourselves, but not the whole of ourselves, not the reality and the fullness of who we are. So why do we do this? Why are we prone out of pain and out of disorientation and out of difficult relationships, why are we prone to offer a version of ourselves rather than our true self? Um, Rich Plass and Jim Cofield, who have written a really helpful book called The Relational Soul, they're sort of distilling some psychological and sociological research uh, as well as their wisdom as counselors, and they appropriate this term from the world of psychology. Um, They speak of the false self. They say that's what, what we're really doing is we're offering a false self, a version of ourselves, a, something that looks like ourself, but it's not our true self. They describe it as this, the me that I want you to see. See, there's me, there's who I really am, and then there's the me that I want you to see. And what most of us do is we offer in relationship the me that I want you to see, but we withhold and we protect the real me, who I am in my truest sense of my being. And I think as I've pondered and tried to to read and think about this tendency that we have in relationships to offer a version of ourselves, to offer the false self instead of our true self, I think that tendency is rooted in three very deep emotions that go all the way back to Genesis 3. And so where I want to go tonight is Genesis chapter 3, and to take a look at these three very deep, very primal emotions that get tapped in the fall, and that every single one of us have felt in some way ever since. Those three emotions are shame, fear, and guilt. Shame, fear, and guilt. The false self is rooted in our desire to protect against and to avoid feeling shame, fear, and guilt. So you all know the story, Genesis chapter 3. Adam and Eve sin against God in the garden. And as we read the narrative that's given to us in Genesis 3, in Genesis 3 verse 7 we read this. Then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. So contrast that with that idea Scotty camped out on last night at the end of chapter 2, the reality of being naked and unashamed, fully known, fully open before the gaze of God. What's introduced into the equation in Genesis 3? This sense of shame. Their eyes are opened and they realize, I'm naked, I'm vulnerable, I'm exposed. And their response is to sew fig leaves together and to cover themselves. So the first thing we see raised in a world fallen into sin is the reality of shame. Shame is that sense, by the way, here's how shame and guilt are different. Guilt tends to be focused on what I've done or haven't done. Shame tends to be focused on my existence or my identity. Shame is that feeling that there's something wrong with me. There's something embarrassing about me. 
If people really knew me, they would avoid me. They wouldn't want to know me. There's something deeply wrong with who I am. That's the reality of shame. As we read on in the narrative and we get to verse 10, we see God coming, pursuing Adam and Eve in the garden and saying, where are you? And verse 10, Adam says, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. So in addition to shame, we have fear. And this isn't a healthy fear. It's not the right kind of biblical fear of God that's commended in the Bible. Rather, this is a fear that drives hiding, that drives avoidance, that drives getting away from God. Feelings of vulnerability. And God says in verse 11, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman who you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree and I ate. And so again, we see this recognition of guilt and an immediate desire to sort of shift blame to the woman because after all, she's the one that gave it to me. There's an obvious awareness of guilt that I have, in fact, God transgressed what you asked us to do. Shame, fear, and guilt. These are introduced into the equation in the midst of the fall and have been with us ever since and here's the reality every one of you in the room knows these three emotions and every one of us here does everything we can to avoid them right none of us want to fear to feel shame fear and guilt and so we do our best to avoid them we do our best to suppress them we do our best to run from them we do our best to cover them we do our best to hide them we do our best to avoid anything that might trigger those feelings or expose those feelings or make us confront those feelings but make no mistake those three feelings are at play in our emotional and relational lives um one of these is probably the the driving force in how you relate to the world. For most of us, how we're wired, we tend to feel more squarely either guilt or fear or shame. They're all present in all of us, but we sort of have a tendency for one of these to be the driver in our emotional and relational world, uh, whether we know it or not. So here's what I've learned about myself in the past few years as I've tried to engage what's going on in my soul relationally. And I'm going to use that story that I told you as an example. In, in me, the dominant driver is guilt. And so here's what I felt in that situation as that couple that my wife had gotten to be friends with and that my children had gotten to be friends with all of a sudden left our church and sort of abandoned the relationship that we had forged with them. I began to feel guilt and the guilt in my head sounded like this. It's my fault that I got my wife and kids into this. The pain that they're feeling about this couple leaving is my fault because if I'd been more discerning, if I'd asked more questions, if I'd really sort of vetted them more, if I hadn't jumped so quickly into gospel community with this couple, maybe they wouldn't have gotten as deeply engaged and maybe these relationships wouldn't be so painful and maybe my kids wouldn't be feeling the the discomfort and, and distress of having friends leave the church. That's my fault. So for me, that situation triggered feelings of guilt. My wife's dominant register emotionally is shame. And so for her, it triggered a different set of doubts and a different set of internal dialogues. And for her, it sounded like this. See, I knew this is what happens when people get close to me. There's something about me that they don't like. There's something about me that drives them away. There's something about me that they don't want to know. So this just reinforces that I'm not really worthy of being friends with people. 
So it's driving deeply emotive things in each of us that sound a little bit different, but that are tapping into these very primal feelings of guilt and fear and shame. And so because of our desire to avoid these feelings, what we do in, emotion, in emotional and relational engagement is we withhold ourselves. Right? We self-protect. We isolate. We avoid deep relationship because we want to avoid feeling guilt and shame and fear. And so for me, as a guilt-driven person, who, who in a scenario like that says, I should have I seen this coming, I should have known better, I should have led better, I should have done things differently so that we could have gotten out of this situation or avoided being in this painful place. For a person driven by those kinds of nagging fears, here's my default then, how it affects me going forward is I start to think like this, well, I'm not entering into a relationship with anyone again in a deep way unless I know that that's not going to happen. You see what I'm doing there? I'm just withholding, I'm justifying withholding relationship out of a sense of guilt that says, next time I won't let that happen. Fool me once, how's it go? Fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on me. Something like that. That whole thing, right? I won't let this happen again. I'll withhold relationship until it's a sure bet that you're not going to leave, that you're not going to abandon the relationship, that we're in it for the long haul. Now again, was that in the front and center of my consciousness? Absolutely not. I can only tell you this was true in hindsight. But in situations of relational and emotional turmoil, that's the calculus that tends to be present in our thinking. I'll tell you another story uh, from a, a young leader in our church. As I was sort of processing some of these things with him and some of the relational dynamics in his life, here's a story he told me. Um, he said, when I was 12 years old, um, I was a pretty good baseball player and I was playing on a little league team and my dad was the coach. Um, my dad was a guy I looked up to, respected. He was sort of the guy that, you know, the, the man I wanted to impress and be like. And he said, I remember an important game we had where I was at bat and I was a pretty good hitter and I struck out. And we lost the game. And I remember I got in the car and my dad didn't say a word to me on the whole drive home or the rest of the day. And he said, my dad's silence communicated to me in that moment and reinforced for me I'm never going to strike out again and so you know how this guy relates to the world he doesn't try anything that he might fail at and for him in our church I was trying to I was trying to get underneath hey man I think you have amazing leadership potential I think you could really be a disciple maker why don't you step in more courageously to leadership and this was where we got to he said man because when I was 12 I made a decision I'm never striking out again and so if there's a chance I'll fail at it, I'd just rather not try. You guys can relate to these kinds of stories. You know what the story is in your own soul that sort of anchors these feelings and it causes you to be okay offering a version of yourself but not your real self, right? It's driven in these primal emotions, shame, fear, and guilt. So here's the simple truth I want to communicate to you and show you that it actually does change how we interact in relationships. Here's the good news, friends. The gospel frees us from shame, the gospel frees us from fear, and the gospel frees us from guilt. And the, the magic is not just in knowing that, but in actually believing it and stepping into situations where we might normally expect to fear, shame, fear, and guilt and believing the good news of the gospel in ways that set us free to move into relationship. 
Let me ground what I'm saying biblically real quick. The gospel frees us from shame. You know this. I'm not telling you anything you haven't heard in a sermon. But listen, 1 Peter 2, verse 6, quoting the Old Testament. Behold, I'm laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in Him will not be put to shame. Likewise, the writer of Hebrews tells us that Jesus endured the cross despising the shame and sat down at the right hand of God. Jesus in His work over the, on the cross has triumphed over shame and listen, has set us free from the deep, deep feelings of shame that tend to run underneath the surface of our lives. You're okay in Jesus. You're accepted in Jesus. You're not shameful or embarrassing to Jesus. The Gospel frees us from shame. Likewise, the gospel frees us from, from fear. Right Again, I'm not telling you anything you haven't heard in a sermon at a church that preaches the Bible. 1 John 4, 18, there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. And in the perfect love of the Father given to us in the Lord Jesus Christ, fear has been cast out. We're set free for the kind of love that the Father has shown us, which is John, one of John's key points in his epistle, right? As God loved us, so we are to love one another because God's love has cast fear out of us and now we can move without fear into love toward one another. Likewise, the gospel frees us from guilt. Romans 8.1, there is therefore now no condemnation, no condemnation, for those who are in Christ Jesus. And I think we can, it's easy for us to think about that for me as a sort of guilt-minded person to think about it in terms of, I, I know that the guilt of my sin is taken away, but what about the guilt of my failure in relationships? What about the guilt of the fact that I'm not as good a leader as I should be or could be or should have been in some situation? What about the guilt I feel for bad decisions I've made as a leader that have affected the people in my church? Is that forgiven? You bet it is. You bet it is. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So when we're living in the good of the gospel, as we increasingly access the riches of the gospel and work them down, not in just to our thinking, but into the existential fabric of our lives, into those deep places in our hearts where guilt and shame and fear reside, as we allow the promises and truths of the gospel to get worked down into those places in our being, here's what that means. We're increasingly free to offer ourselves not a version of ourselves. Here's some questions for you. Where are you holding back or holding out? Where are you holding back or holding out? Where are you withholding yourself? In what relationships in your life are you giving a piece of yourself, but not you? Here's how the Lord worked on me in the midst of this whole situation. We started another gospel community after that one fell apart and we had sort of taken a few months to grieve and process and rehabilitate as best we could. We started another gospel community. And here's what I was offering in that gospel community. Hey, I'll show up, I'll be the pastor, 
and the guy who leads this community and kind of guides the discussion, I'll, I'll do what I need to do to lead this and make it work, but you're not getting me. You don't get me, you don't get into my life, you don't get into my soul. What you get is leader Bob. Guess what that community began to feel like? Began to feel exactly like you expect it to feel. Where the relationships were shallow. Um, where there wasn't really deep community being formed because not only I but my wife as well were sort of withheld. There was a guardedness in us. There was a sense that we weren't willing to be fully present. And so guess what? Nobody else was willing to be fully present either. And so what we had was a real surface level average gospel community. And then in God's grace, he began to work in me. Began to help me see some of these dynamics in my own soul, in my own being, and in my own presence. And began to help me believe the gospel in ways that brought actual freedom. In ways that helped me see, gosh, you know what I'm doing? I'm modeling for people the exact opposite of what I'm preaching. Right? Here I'm the guy that's preaching the gospel. And what I'm doing in my relational dynamic is I'm saying, I'm just going to show up and give you the best sort of religious version of me that I can muster. What hypocrisy. How sad. What, what, a, what a poor picture of the gospel. And the Lord began to convict me of my need to repent. To repent of the ways I was withholding myself. To repent of the ways that I was giving people 50% of who I was, but not the fullness of who I was. I was posturing and pretending and withholding. And as I began to repent of that, as I began to own that, as I began to say, Lord, I'm sorry, I am doing that, and I know that it's not what you made me for. Not only that, I know there's great risk in offering myself, because last time I did that, it hurt really bad. And I still feel the stings of that friendship going away. So I'm going to need your grace to offer myself, because you know what? I don't want to. There's a reason I'm not offering myself, and it's this. I don't want to. I'm afraid. It feels like it'll be painful. But here's what happened. The Lord, in His goodness and grace, out of the resources of the Holy Spirit, began to give not only me, but my wife as well, the capacity to open up and offer more and more of ourselves to that group. And even to acknowledge the ways we had withheld, the ways we were giving only a portion of ourselves. And you know what began to happen? A really beautiful community began to form. Really deep relationships and friendships began to emerge. Um, we began to feel like, man, we're getting more of the people in this community. They're giving more of themselves. You know why? Because we're giving more of ourselves. Out of our repentance and faith, they're experiencing grace. And they're being invited into the same thing. Friends, here's what I want you to see. The gospel frees you to offer yourself and not just a version of yourself. And the beauty of that is it doesn't happen all at once. It doesn't happen overnight. It happens as you begin to identify where in your life are guilt, fear, and shame keeping you posturing and pretending. Where are they keeping you withholding yourself? Are you willing to see that, recognize it for what it is, and trust the Lord that what He wants to move you into is not scary and not, it's not going to end badly? But he wants to move you into a courageous sort of hospitality and openness. Here's the challenge that was for my wife and I, right? Because what we wanted out of the pain of that relationship that sort of fell apart, what we wanted was a guarantee that that wasn't going to happen again. We wanted 
to know that the next relationship we entered into was some family in our church that was deep and rich and sort of mutually encouraging like that, that it was going to be stable and secure and never go away. That's natural and normal, but you know what the Lord began to convict us of? That's also control. If what I'm saying is I won't risk myself relationally, I won't give the fullness of myself unless I know that it's going to go well, you know what I'm really doing? I'm just playing God. I'm saying, God, if you promise me everything will go fine, then I'll really invest faith. But unless I know how it's going to go, I'm not willing to trust you. And so as we began to repent of our lack of faith and just say, okay, Lord, we're wounded. We're coming out of difficult emotional pain. And we really don't want to offer the fullness of ourselves, but we need you to help us. We need you to grace us. We need you to free us to do that. That risk begins to feel a little bit more like trust, which is really what it is, right? Trust is always risky. Trusting the Lord is never um, without risk. It's never without challenge. It's never without some degree of a little bit of fear and trepidation because after all, we don't have any guarantees of how it's gonna turn out. But the beauty is, this is what the Spirit invites us into. This is what the gospel frees us for, is entering into the kind of relationships that are risky and yet deep where we give the fullness of ourselves. So friends, here's what I'm saying to you. All of us are wired and affected by the fall so that guilt, fear, and shame are present in us. But the gospel frees us from guilt, fear, and shame in ways that allow us to offer ourselves and not just a version of ourselves. And the most beautiful kind of community, the richest kind of community, the fullest kind of community, the healthiest kind of community, the most God-honoring, most God-glorifying kind of community is the kind of community that comes when a bunch of God's people really offer themselves and risk being as fully known as broken humans can be this side of glory with one another. And in that beautiful mess, we experience the beauty of God's grace transforming us, changing us, renewing us, and showing to the city around us the beauty of a community that knows its own brokenness and isn't afraid of it, but rather experiences the redemptive grace of God in the midst of it. Let me pray that we, God would increasingly make us that kind of a people. Spirit, thank you. Thank you that you are at work to free us from guilt, fear, and shame. Thanks to Jesus that you have done the work to free us from that. And yet thank you as Scotty reminds us in that painting that we looked at last night that the kingdom is always already and not yet. And so there's a sense that we've been set free from these things and yet we still feel them and experience them and the freedom comes progressively. For my friends here in Denver, would you help them see the freedom and the beauty of the gospel in ways that kill guilt, and fear, and shame, and that allow us to risk more and more of ourselves in friendship with one another. I pray the quality of our friendships, the quality of our relationships, the quality of the community you build among us might testify to a watching world of the beauty of the gospel to heal what's broken, to restore what's been damaged, and to bring strength where there's weakness. Work out of our weakness to glorify yourself, we pray for your glory. Amen.